notion of digital design as actually emotional design and the fact that the digital world is crossing over from being a technical problem, but as the technology gets ubiquitous, it's crossing over to becoming uh, a question of emotion uh, and of uh, understanding the sort of the emotional mindset of the user is probably key to getting services that matter to people. Um, so I wanted to show you a little bit of background on that. Uh, and then at the end, uh, I've broken it down. I think I'm up to 13 things that you can do for free, uh, which sort of that notion came out of the uh, realization at a certain point that most of the good information we were getting in our research over the past year um, wasn't coming out of heavily formalized research, it was coming out of off-the-shelf technologies. Um, stuff you can go out and download off the internet or stuff you can do basically for free um, is garnering great results and there's a lot of stuff that you can you know, download for free today that would have been tens of thousands of dollars 10 years ago and probably hundreds of thousands of dollars 20 years ago and impossible 30 years ago. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a good uh, reminder every once in a while to remember that there's all these tools out there that we can use. Um, so my official title is Digital User Analyst, and I have some problems with that title. Um, first of all, I think user is a little bit off-putting. Um, we've been trying to refer to patrons uh, within the library. Um, your mileage may vary for your organization, but we've been going with patrons, so probably I would adjust this to digital patron analyst. And yeah, in fact, I'm not really comfortable with digital either, because what the heck is a digital user? Um, there really isn't any such thing as a digital user anymore. And that's going to be a big theme of the stuff we're talking about, is that the digital and the physical have become so inextricably overlapped that you can't separate one from the other. Here's an example. Uh, NYPL, we keep track of where people are coming from on the catalog. We have banks of catalog terminals in every single library location. And even with that concession, 87% of all visits to the catalog, 87% of all searches on the catalog, come from outside the library. Um, we're finding that people are moderating their visit to the library through the catalog. They figure out when they're ready to come in, and then they arrive. Um, this is a stat. I just pulled this last night, and it blew my mind. Um, I've been tracking this a little bit, but I hadn't tracked it in a couple of months, and it's really jumped up in the end. Um, mobile usage, web, smartphones has increased sevenfold in the last 18 months. This is May 2008. That's Halloween of this year, down at the end. Uh, this is 2,000 visits in a month. Last month, we had 16,000 visits on mobile phones. We have made no, we have a beta for mobile phones, but we haven't even promoted it other than a blog posting. And so this is with no concession to uh, change the website. So you're getting this. Uh, curve that shows that very soon people are just going to be walking around with these little digital devices in their pockets and moderating their um, physical interaction with the library through this tiny digital portable device. That 
is what a nascent revolution looks like. You can just see that curve kicking up there at the end. It looks like it's just about to go exponential. And you know, once we actually launch the, the mobile version of the website, I would imagine that that's going to jump way up. Um, ran across this quote from William Gibson. Uh, William Gibson, for those of you who are not science fiction fans, um, this is a library crowd, so probably most of you are science fiction fans like me. Um, William Gibson, if you don't know him, he's the guy who invented the word cyberspace. He made it up out of whole cloth 25 years ago in the novel Neuromancer. And in a recent interview, he said, people will be reading Neuromancer not as a picture of the future, but to get their heads around the time when the digital was thought of separate. Um, and I think that's really interesting that basically the guy who invented cyberspace from a figment of his imagination 25 years ago is now saying it's not big enough to hold the concept. So I come from the New York Public Library. Um, this is a cross-section of our stacks. You're probably familiar with the building. Probably some of you have taken the tour. Um, what I didn't know until I worked there is that these stacks actually extend all the way under Bryant Park. So when we talk about the physical uh, library being moderated by the digital, um, I see this as our job. You know, is getting that literally buried trove of physical goodness up into the world. And it's impressive. It's millions of volumes. Uh, I know Columbia, this library has millions of volumes. But in the digital world, in the area where people search, get, you know, they get used to Google, they get used to searching the entire web in fractions of a second, we suddenly find out this sad truth. Your collections are not important. Yes, your collections and holdings are good, but your collections as a whole, you know, the 51 million items that your public library has is not important to the patron. What is important to the patron? The one book out of the 51 million that they want to see. No single user thinks in terms of massive collections. That leads to the big question. What does it mean to run a library in a world of information superabundance? When everybody has access to millions and millions of pieces of information from thousands of sources all over the world at the touch of a button, how do we make the library work? Um, so I was thinking about this, and this is a quote from John Gilmore that was going around sort of at the start of the web. He said, the net interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. Um, I thought that was, in the, you know, that, that kind of blew my mind when he said that in 93. It was, you know, the, the, the internet, um, if you don't know the history of the internet, the internet comes out of the ARPANET, which was the Department of Defense's network, which was designed to survive nuclear war. The original problem of making the internet robust was so that you could knock out any point in the network and still have a functioning network with bits that were left. Um, so he was saying that, you know, now that that's become public, if you put up a block, roadblock in one place, information goes around it. And 15 years ago, we were really concerned about the physical network. And now that the physical network has grown to such a point, it needs to be updated for the web, for the emotional end of things, for the design end of things. And this is what I would say would be the new version. It's sort of this, a social version of John Gilmore's quote, which is that the web, the social applications that are built on the web, 
they're also doing damage routing. When people have many, many options, they just go to a better experience. So the web interprets bad design as damage and routes around it. Bad user experience is damage that people can route around. Bad social interactions are damage that things will be routed around. Um, the implication of this, um, a lot of people might be familiar with from Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, that came out a couple of years ago. Um, if you're not interested in economics and you know, supply-demand curves and everything, I wouldn't recommend reading the whole book, but if you can find a lecture by him online, there's a couple of IT conversations and where he presents just the high level of the concepts. It's really interesting. He's speaking more in terms of competitive products, but if you look at the library itself as a competitive product in an information marketplace, um, his concept of um, disruptive innovation, where stuff, basically his thesis is, stuff that is freely available and easy, even if it's not as good as the original, tends to win. You know, think microcomputers beating out mainframes in the 70s. You know, think classic example, VHS versus Betamax, all disruptive innovation. That has some bad news for libraries, which is this, that people would rather pay for a good experience than to endure a bad one for free. Uh, the classic example of this, iTunes. You know, Steve Jobs came out with iTunes a few years ago, and they said it was the height of Napster, it was file sharing, they said, you know, you guys are never gonna make any money, any teenager can download any music for free. Well, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, bad experience, it was, it was you could download for free, but it wasn't easy. Apple made it easy. They just announced, I think, what, the seven billion download from iTunes of songs, and then another billion of just apps for iPhones. Um, they've made lots and lots and lots of money selling something that was available for free. Here's the good news. People would rather have a good experience for free than pay for one. <laughs> And the library is in the business of giving away stuff for free. I like that business model. It's why I signed up. I wasn't very good at the for-profit thing, so I kind of left the business world. I'm happy to be at the library. And, you know, we've got a lot of company. You know, there's a lot of industries that are, you know, reading Clay Christensen's book and freaking out a little. And, you know, we've got a lot of people to look around and emulate and learn from. So we've got broadcast media, magazines, newspapers. All these industries are facing the same set of innovative disruptions. So for us, let's get down to it. Why do people use libraries at all? We need to figure out what motivates people to figure out how to best serve them. And they're granted there are some things we do that are critical, especially in the public library world. We have free access to internet, we have job placement services, uh, you know, books uh, for the disabled, people for the, home uh, you know, for the homebound. Uh, so there are certain things we do, but I would say the majority of our audience, they do it for emotional reasons. Most of our audience shows up because they love books, music, film, they just love learning. And that emotion is a very, very powerful force in keeping us going. So those stories of motivation, the stories of how people get 
to the library is critical. Even when you're working on technical projects, it doesn't matter. Um, the emotional aspect is very important. Um, I kind of joke sometimes, my job is going to be done when I have intimate knowledge of why every single person has shown up on the website. And I don't think that's going to happen for a while, <laughs> considering we have about 40,000 unique visitors a day. Um, emotion's a funny thing, though. It gets a little sketchy, and you can't always measure it with a single statistic. So we have to kind of look around. Um, to talk about emotion in libraries, I just want to have, uh, quickly show you uh, the same view of the library through two different sets of eyes. So I want to show you very quickly, here's some pictures I took on my cell phone of walking into the New York Public Library the way, say, the Board of Trustees of the New York Public Library would like to believe it works. You start on 41st Street, Library Way, there are these brass plaques set into the sidewalk that as you're walking down the street you see bits of poetry leading you to the library. You get to these steps, one of the great urban spaces of New York City. Uh, the great sociologist William White spent 20 years studying these steps <laughs> and how people hang out on them. You walk up there and you've got these you know, grand bronze doors and you walk through and you come into Astor Hall. It's gorgeous and suddenly it's in this big sweeping staircase where you know, the Sex and the City wedding was. And, you know, then you go up another staircase and it's, you know, you see that rotunda come into view and it's just dramatic and there's this sunlight streaming out of the reading room and you walk in and it's like, wow, that's beautiful and in fact you're only in the catalog room. This isn't even in the reading room yet. And it's overwhelming. It's a cathedral of learning. And incidentally, when you get there, when you get to the most physical space that a library has to offer in New York City. What is on the altar? <laughs> a computer. So there's the physical and the digital intertwined. The most physical thing we have winds up with it being mediated through a digital experience. Let's try that again. This time, you are not the person who is making a pilgrimage to the Cathedral of Learning, but you're a nine-year-old who is going to the library for her first time. She's been motivated and she's reading books in class and she's saying, I'm going to go on Saturday afternoon to the library because my teacher told me that would be cool. She walks up, she's like, okay, it's a really big building. Um, is this the front door? It's really dark. I can't see in there, but I guess people are going in, so maybe I'll go in and immediately... <laughs> You are faced with, please present all packages, bags, briefcases, and backpacks. And there's a security guard going through your stuff. And while she's waiting in line for the security guard, she's looking up, going like, am I allowed to be here? And then she's looking around going, I don't see any books. Is this the right place? And probably right about here is where that nine-year-old, the user I would argue is one of the most important, the motivated user who arrives for the first time, this is about the point where she flees in terror. <laughs> so it's the same experience, but the emotional aspect is completely different. And the only difference, you know, the physical space, that wonderful physical space is both a, a benefit and a, and a burden. So we get feedback like this. Um, <laughs> 
So this emotional aspect manifests itself in the digital world as well. And uh, I, I love this example. Um, I was flipping around Cornell University doing a little research of how they're doing uh, their, their website. Found this nice page, Ask a Librarian, and the banner there, it's like, oh, cool, it's got a little painting in the background. And in fact, they've got random illustrations from their uh, picture collection showing up as the background of the header, which is very, you know, very cool. Expose some of the collections and everything. If you're going to do that, you might want to check the emotional context, though, because the first day I arrived here, this was <laughs> <laughs> I've said it before, this picture gets weirder the longer you look at it. So there, there is... So emotions are really big part of the library experience. And here's why that matters. is because, um, well, you guys, if, for those of you from Columbia University, you probably do have people who are forced to go to the library. So we'll make an exception for you. But coming from the public library world, we're optional. We, you know, we, that not, not optional in a bad way, but people volunteer themselves to come to the library. They come because they love the library. Um, they come because we're better than the alternatives. Um, they don't want to go to bookstores. They don't want to go to Starbucks. They want to go to the library. The library performs a specific function. So can we be relevant in a world where we're fighting with all of these competitions? I'd say, yeah, of course we can. Because libraries have a lot of good things going for them. Uh, libraries, librarians are the original search engines. So people are overwhelmed with information. People are terrified by the rate of change of information. And having members of society whose job it is to act as you know, information Sherpas, climbing up the Everest of information, is a very good role to play and a necessary one in society. Um, I was, doing, I was out in Staten Island doing some user testing on the new website yesterday, sitting down doing one-on-one -on -one interviews with people using the website. And I had a couple of different people, you know, I asked them, you know, we give, we give them little scenarios. Where would you go to, um, where would you go to find out how to register for a class? And I had more than one of them say, uh, I'd ask a librarian. <laughs> like. Okay, that's, that's great, but okay, what button would you press? <laughs> I had to guide them back to the website because they wanted to go right to the library. Um, so libraries are also third places, especially in New York City. You need places to go that are not work, that are not home. You need social spaces. And part of that, librarians are engines for letting communities find each other. Um, key role, understanding the, 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 the sub-segments of your community not as a whole, but as individuals, so that they can find each other based on common interest. So that's the emotional framing of where we were coming from. Um, and I wanted to get down to some of the specific things that we're doing, some of the specific things that we're looking at, and um, show you um, some of the off-the-shelf technologies we use, and I'm going to end up with one piece of software that we actually wrote, that we've now open-sourced. and. Uh, I will offer to all of you. And at the end, uh, we'll show you a little bit of case study of uh, some of the things we've learned that we're actually applying to the website. 
And these are all things that you can do for free. Start with the basics. Watch your patrons do stuff. Watch people sit in front of the computer and struggle with it. Watch them use your website. Watch them look up um, books in the catalog. Keep your eyes open. Uh, phrased another way, um, our greatest Zen master. Um, my corollary for this, based on having worked in software development, is that breaking the system and fixing the system are two different jobs. Um, you don't think that because you're working the front desk and you're interacting with people that are actually observing, you're learning, you're helping people, but you have to take the time to actually sit and observe. To, to, it's, it, it's a job to watch critically. Um, subset of this, look at what's on every screen in your library. I take a, a little cell phone with me and I take pictures of screens whenever I visit a branch library. Um, this is the standard public terminal screen in the library. Yeah, I guess so. You know, it's the, the number of the computer terminal is on the screensaver and you know how welcoming is that? <laughs> Could be better. You know, and then when you turn off the screensaver, that's your row of icons. You know, is this is this doing something for you or is it just, you know, throwing information at you? Um, fortunately, they're not all quite so dull. This is actually a really nice one from the Library of Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. They designed their own screens for their research collections. And I like this one. You could argue it's a little bit gray and needs a little bit more contrast, but presenting the most common things right up front, you know, that, that's a well-designed screen. That's, that's a good job there. Um, don't just look at the first screens, but look at error messages, look at, um, you know, things that are being responded to. Um, this is one, this is from me trying to take this book out. Um, your request failed, please contact the circulation desk. You will be notified when this title is available by mail. <laughs> did I succeed or not? I don't know. <laughs> um, and also it tells me, please contact the circulation desk. What circulation desk? Where? I'm in my house. Um, so, I don't know. Um, <coughs> Here's another error message. Uh, this, is, this is actually the standard reservation screen if you want to reserve computer time in, in NYPL. And it's got, you've reserved this PC, if PC is available, for future reservation. Um, when the text is green, a full-length session is available. Available. Um, so it, it's, it's sort of very wordy and very redundant and very, you know, it wants to be confusing. And if you notice, I think if you, if I'm reading this correctly, this text is explaining this text, which is explaining this text, which tells you the computer's available. <laughs> um, I think if you left out everything up top and just showed me available, I probably would have gotten the idea. Um, the, so these things are, are specific. Um, and I would say, this is uh, William McDonough, who's one of my design heroes, an architect, does a lot of green buildings. Um, he said, regulations are a failure of design. We shouldn't need rules that say you can't put toxic chemicals into a building. You know, what we really need is a system that gives you better alternatives. We should have healthier stuff that's cheaper and start from the supply side. Um, and I would, 
I would say take that and um, add to it instructions or signals of design failure. If you have bits of text that are explaining other bits of text on the screen, um, probably the button you're trying to explain has a design problem, has a design flaw. So I hear you saying, yeah, all of that's great, all of these buttons are good to be analyzed, but we buy stuff from the vendor and they don't fix things. So my number three on the list, send feedback to your software vendors. Um, library software as a category, um, I, if any of you are writing software for libraries, I will make an exception for yours and your, your, your software is not But most library software is bad in terms of user experience. Um, when you look at the web where commerce is iterating very quickly and generating good experiences, um, the Googles and the Netflix and the Amazons of the world are moving very fast forward in user experience and libraries are a couple years behind. Um, the vendors that we buy from tend to only hear from libraries and if we don't tell them that they need to catch up, they're not going to because I've been on the vendor side as well. And <laughs> I know they have their own priorities and the squeaky wheel does get the grease in that case. Related to this, your patrons are not stupid. People who struggle to use bad software don't have something wrong with them. The problem lies with software. Fix the software. Um, I've seen people struggle to use you know, parts of our catalog or whatever, but I've also seen, you know, 65-year-old retirees who have learned how to hack the system to get around problems in the system. They're struggling, but they're not stupid. The feedback that they're giving doesn't mean they don't understand how to use it. It means that we need to do a better job of meeting their needs. And none of the patrons like to feel stupid. <laughs> so getting back to the emotional, this comes back in, uh, we don't want to reinforce people feeling like they don't know what they're doing when they come to the library. So it's, you know, that's that circle in, uh, in small scale, is uh, that people feel bad about using software that's bad, and finally they wind up at some point just not coming back to the library. Um, and you might think that, you know, oh, well, you know, people expect things a certain way, the web is only 20 years old, and sort of the commercial public web as we know it, probably you know, a little less than 15 years old. So we're still inventing the right way to do this. Nobody's got all the answers. And back to William McDonough again. <laughs> Love this quote. Uh, you know, it's, it takes a while to get things right. The, the good design solutions are always available to be found. So don't assume that, you know, oh, we just do it that way, that's the way it is. Don't accept the status quo. Um, okay, some more, some more techie stuff. Google Analytics, if you don't have a good stats package, if you don't have a stats package that lets you see your most popular pages, if you don't have a stats package that lets you um, see what people are searching for on your website, Google Analytics is free. This is one of those things that, you know, 15 years ago, this would have been $100,000, and you can go install it in about you know, 15 minutes for nothing. 
and it's uh, it's the main statistics package that we use for our websites right now. Um, gives you it's the user design is brilliant. Uh, gives you these nice, very clear, very simple charts. Um, you can dig down into uh, where people are coming from geographically, what technology they're using, do they have Flash installed, um, what paths are they doing, you can set up goals, um, you can assign transaction values, uh, so even if you're not making money, you can pretend you make money. <laughs> you can say if somebody takes out a book, we'll call that 50 cents, and you can see which of the pages are your top earners. Uh, it's very cool stuff. Um, and then once you have stats, decide in advance what's going to measure success. Um, I have a case study here. This is our digital gallery. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, about 750,000 images, mostly in the public domain. We put them up online, you can search, you can find images all over the place. We launched this kind of as a pilot, it took off, you know, it was linked from all over the place, Time Magazine linked to it, and Boing Boing linked to it, we got tons of traffic. They said, great, we need to redesign, we did usability testing, we redesigned, and um, we launched it kind of end of last year, early this year, and um, then we got the results back. And this is what happened. Um, Pages per visit <coughs> dropped significantly. Average time on site dropped significantly. And we thought, yay, that's what we wanted. Why? Because those weren't the stats that we were interested in. Here's the rest of the stats that we were interested in. Total visits were up 62%. Page views were up 20%. And traffic from search engines, like people arriving, you know, finding our stuff through Google up 35%, which is driving a lot of that total visits number. Um, the total time on site was dropping because, first of all, when it, when it first came out, people were spending a ton of time searching through it, and then they're like, wow, this is great, and then later they had internalized it as a tool. They were returning more often, coming back more frequently, and doing more directed searches. So the story there wasn't that these two key numbers had gone down, the total picture told us that we were actually getting a lot more usage a lot more frequently with shorter visits. Um, I really, you know, just as an aside, I'm not a fan of total time on site and total page views as a good metric to follow because you really can't make any sense out of that number without understanding the story behind it. Um, so I'd ask this question, how long should a website visit be? Like, well, if somebody is trying to find every single picture about baseball on the digital gallery, yeah, you want probably 20 pages or so to visit. But what if it's a young mom with two kids and her hands full realizing that her library book is overdue and she wants to see if the Tottenville branch is going to be open today until 5 o'clock or until 6 o'clock and she's got her iPhone in one hand and two kids in the other? <laughs> What's the ideal length of that visit? I'd say one page. <laughs> you know, the successful visit there is she comes in, looks up that information, gets it, puts the phone away, and grabs the other kid who's gone off to chew on something. Um, so that's a, a stat that by itself is meaningless, unless you know the story behind it. Okay. This one might be a little 
out there for some people. Um, how many people use Twitter? A lot of people here, good. How many people think Twitter is the stupidest idea that they've ever heard? Yeah. Um, you know, how many people are kind of in between, they're a little wary of it, but you know. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, I have been in all three camps. Um, a year ago, I was like, what can you possibly say in 140 characters like, that's not trivial? Um, and I thought it was really stupid. And I realized that, yes, everything that you can say in 140 characters is kind of trivial. But if 6 million people are saying something in 140 characters, the sum totality of the network is actually very, very, very interesting. Um, and what we found was at the library, a lot of people were tweeting about the library. And all we needed to do was to listen in. And we picked up quite a stream. Um, even if you don't care about Twitter and you would never post little tiny things, I would recommend going on Twitter and searching for things that are of interest to you. And this little link here, underneath the search bar, RSS feed for this query, is killer. Um, those of you who are database geeks, this will take Boolean queries, so you can do quotes and or um, form complex queries in Twitter search. So we do all the variant spellings of NYPL, New York Public Library, New York Library, NYPL, um, any variant spelling we can think of as an and in search. And then we save it as an RSS feed. And then every morning when I come in to my Google Reader, I am faced with a string of tweets about the library. When we started doing this, we were getting about 30 a week. A year later, we get about 150 a day. Um, and this is just people talking about the library. This is not me really interacting with Twitter all that much on my own. This is just listening. This is just saying what's there. And the great thing about using it with uh, a, a blog aggregator like Google Reader is that they're also short. You can just skim this as a subject line, and you can basically read all the tweets without even opening any of these. I can, I can just scan the headlines and I see what people are talking about. Um, but you see all, all kinds of stuff in there. What, you know, what exhibitions people are talking about. Uh, we just launched a new logo. Some of you might have seen we, we launched a, a, you know, a new logo. Launched on a Friday, 5 o'clock. They had a little you know, ceremony. By 9 a.m. Saturday morning, the design world was all abuzz with our new logo and critiquing it. I love it. I hate it. And, you know, just, and by Monday morning, it's like I could present the design team with like, hey, here's 300 things that people said about your design over the weekend. <laughs> you know, that's the modern world right there. So uh, here's some of the kind of things you get into. Um, it's, it's ESP, really. You know, it's the closest thing we have to like getting into people's brains, because they don't really realize that we're listening <laughs> sometimes. So, you know, we get a lot of good feedback. So notice this is 11.15 uh, a.m. August 18th. Same author 15 minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> that last little bit, there are people who smell weird. This is the kind of thing you get in Twitter when people don't think you're watching, is that this is actually a search on smell in the Twitter feed from the library. There's an ongoing thread, not frequently, but maybe one, two a week, where people who talk about what the library smells like. Now, in a million years, would we have ever come up with that information from a survey? How, how low on the priority list is that? 
you know, never would have come up, but the smell of the library turns out to be something that people are concerned about, and some people, it's a very strong, powerful association with them, and we know about it now just by listening. Um, this is actually, this is cheating a little, this is somebody who works for a library, but, uh, but I, I, really, I really like that. Yeah, there's this ongoing thread, what does the library smell like? And it's something people care about, and we know. Um, you know, you talk about how much you can say in 140 characters. Uh, I love this one because it's like this travelogue that covers about, you know, 12,000 miles with the New York Public Library right at the middle of it. Um, so it's somebody flying from San Francisco to India via NYPL. Um, and finally, this is, this is one of my favorite of all time. <laughs> I, she, she's an opera writer. I've become a fan of her work just on the strength of that tweet. <laughs> um, other ways to, to spy on people when they don't think you're looking. And I say spy, you know what I mean. I'm not saying, you know, you've got to mess with privacy, but you've got to be aware of what people are looking for. And one of the strongest things, talking about lots of information in a very small space, is to look for answers in your search terms. And search terms, you have a little search box on the home page, and people are searching for that. And you can see that as sort of mechanical. It's like, oh, they search for this, and we make sure that we have given a certain number of results. But in fact, look at the search box from an emotional point of view. You're basically asking people the question, what are you interested in? And you're having them give you a result in haiku form. You know, it's like this little tiny three-word answer. Like, give me, give me three words about what you're interested in right now. That's what the search box is. So if you look at what people are searching for, it's an incredibly revealing window into what's going on on the website. Um, if any of you have seen this presentation before, don't shout out the answer. But, uh, I would quiz you. What is the most popular search term on NewYorkPublicLibrary.org? Give me some guesses. Hours. 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 Late fees. Late fees. Good guesses. Renew. 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 Up there? No. Not even close. Not even close. Um, in fact, Far and away, over the past year, the single most popular search term has been this, tumble books. What? <laughs> what is tumble books? Tumble books turns out to be very, very popular animated storybooks for children. They are available. They're a third-party site. Um, you have to pay for the subscription if you go directly there, but you can get them for free if you go through the library. What does that tell us? That tells us when we do sort of audience analysis and segmentation, we had better look at stay-at-home moms who are looking for entertainment for their children. Um, and it's probably a very important aspect of our audience. Um, here, by the way, this is, this is the rest of them. DVD, Rosetta Stone languages. That's the Rosetta Stone language uh, thing. Notice number four, Google. Anybody know why Google is getting Googled? Um, it's because the library network is locked down, and we have lots of catalog terminals, but that you can only get the library website. 
but you have to wait in line for the full internet terminal. So people go to the catalog terminal and say, let me see if I can get to Google here. And they search for domain names. And in fact, I've got a slide coming up about 5%. That red switch, this is the totality of search terms by category. And that red wedge, about 5-6% is the number of people who search for domain names. So they search for MySpace, they search for Facebook, they search for Google, they're trying to get outside our network, and they're failing miserably. <laughs> but it's nice to know, we should really give them a message if we search, you know, see somebody searching for something.com, we should you know, probably show them a message like, sorry, you're not on the internet. Um, and then you see the big green swash here is search terms. That's all inside baseball. That's renewals, late fees, um, you know, library card, um, anything that's inside the library. It's about a quarter of all searches. And then the remainders are your you know, subject title person. Over on the digital gallery, the exact same search term cloud shows a very different picture. This is the digital gallery, the 750,000 images being searched. Military uniform, far and away, number one. And interestingly enough, where are the military uniform people coming from? Geographically, it turns out that most of those searches are coming from Russia, Poland, Ukraine. There's like this big community of Russian military enthusiasts who love our collection of 19th century military uniforms. <laughs> cool, yeah, I, uh, more power to them. You know, it's like we didn't know they were there, you know, but we put the stuff out and we attracted that audience. Uh, Britannia shows up a lot, Dickens Gallery. A lot of these I think are kind of canned searches, like somebody posted the, the hard-coded search results page on their blog, so we get a lot of odd spellings showing up over and over again. I think down around here is about where you get the people who are actually uh, searching. But we get maps, Staten Island. Um, you know, I was going through this like, yeah, baseball, I can see that. Fashion, lots of designers, you know, they're using that the, the visual stuff. Flowers, butterfly, you know, very visual stuff. And then local history, so maps, Brooklyn, New York, Staten Island. Rosetta Stone, map, poster. And then I got down here and I went, Luba. What is that? And so we've got this little search term scanner, and I went in there and said, what did they search for later? Well, they searched for later, uh, it's Russian folk, you know, Russian folk, kind of our idea of, it's like all these sort of Russian things. Okay, so I'll check that out. Where are they coming from? Yeah, there they are. Um, so it turns out we have a, um, you know, sort of, Russian, Slavic, Baltic collection, lots of, uh, and these are traditional folk woodcuts in Russia, and there they are. And they turn out to be one of the top 20 most popular searches in there. And, you know, we didn't promote this, we didn't, you know, say this there, we just put it out, and that audience found it. So, as a little exercise, you know, if you don't, if you can't answer this question, if you can't say, what are the patrons passionate about? based on search terms, based on Twitter, find out the things that people are passionate about. If you don't, if you can't figure it out through the stats, ask your staff. <laughs> ask the people who deal with the patrons on a day-to-day -day basis. They will give you the best answers. And figure out wh where you should be expending your energies. Um, 
we've been doing this survey, and, and recently we moved some people around, and I'm now working very closely with the strategy department, um, where we're coming up with sort of user profiles for the entire library. And it came out of uh, us trying to figure out, um, you know, some of the special audiences, like to, uh, you know, dealing with recent immigrants or the homeless. We were trying to figure out getting the exact language right. So we came up with basically a three-question survey for the staff. A, who's your audience? Tell me about them. B, what services do you provide to that audience? And C, what words do they use to talk about those services? So if they were searching for those things, tell me what they would search for, what you think they would search for. Um, this is one. This is one of the clouds of words that the staff gave us for one segment, which is donors at the library. Um, so, you know, a lot of this we probably would have guessed, like, you know, benefit and donate, and, um, you know, words that are very strongly associated. But I wouldn't have thought there would be so much food in there. So dinner and luncheon and breakfast are all words that turn out to have a very strong association in the library with people who give us money. <laughs> um, so, and there's, you know, very specific uh, uh, acronyms. So YLC, um, the, uh, there's another one down here, uh, HOH over there. They're all abbreviations for events that we hold every year. Um, now, I would see HOH, and I wouldn't know what the heck that was, but having asked the, this department. So now we're working on, uh, we're launching a new website in January. And then probably in the spring, we're launching a revised search that will use some of this as intelligence. Um, okay. Once you know, um, start blogging. Uh, blogging is a great way to attract people together, to get, especially if, you're, if you have an open commenting policy. Um, we have people blogging. We have librarians blogging all over. We, about nine months ago, we made a subtle change which I think was very important. We moved our social media policy at the library from ask permission first to go out there and try it first. Um, basically, we said to the librarians, you want to get involved, you want to start blogging, we encourage it. Go make mistakes. If you go too far, we'll back you off. But we don't make people jump through administrative hoops first before they start you know, putting their own voice out because some of the coolest, most interesting stuff that doesn't rise to the level of a publication can be put on a blog post and, and published as part of the library's feed uh, right away. Uh, this is one of our uh, John Flood Hudson Park branch librarian puts together map of you know in this little Google Maps mashup of you know the homes of famous people in the neighborhood around the branch library. Awesome stuff. So along those lines, sharing content, getting stuff out there. Like we saw with the digital gallery, it's like we didn't go after the Russian folk woodcut people, they found us. Um, and if you put your content out there and you make it linkable and you make it findable, some interesting things happen. Like this, you go to the Wikipedia page, and <coughs> artichokes. It turns out that it's not massive, but I'd say about 150 to 200 people a month arrive at the New York Public Library website through the Wikipedia page for artichoke. Why? Because down at the bottom, Wikipedians encourage people to cite sources. We're seen as a good uh, you know, uh, authoritative source. And on our website, we have this video of 
a famous cook giving her family's favorite artichoke recipe in video form. So now this video has been cited as an authoritative source to validate the Wikipedia page on artichokes. Now, you know, would we have ever sat down in a committee meeting and said, we really need to go after the artichoke population? <laughs> not likely, not likely. So stealing ideas. Uh, we're talking with 311. Uh, they, they deal with aggregating lots of information. Uh, we need to aggregate lots of information in our city service. We're a city service, so we're comparing notes with them. Um, Vancouver Public Library recently did a very nice user-centered redesign of their website. I called them up. I said, I love your website. Did you guys do any user research? They're like, yes, we did. Here's 200 pages. I'll send it right over to you. You know, beautiful. I love that about the library world. Like when I was in for-profit, I couldn't go to my competitors and say, I love your website. Can you send us all your research? Um, here again. Uh, <coughs> Rob Stein at IMA has a 100-word elevator pitch for museum software that came out a couple months ago, and he basically said, you know, we have to share more stuff between organizations. Um, capitalize on the warm, fuzzy feelings. People still have good feelings about the library. Um, e-commerce. Um, I used to work in e-commerce. I know how this works. You make a change in design in e-commerce, and at the end of the day, you measure how much more or less money you made, and you have to justify it to your boss. It's a very different environment. So these people are making money on a daily basis, and their design teams uh, respond accordingly. So watch what e-commerce sites are doing. If you go to a big site like Amazon, if you go to eBay, and they've changed the way their search bar works, take note, because that's free research <laughs> on your behalf. Because they don't need to justify um, user research and results, because they're They've internalized it as part of their bottom line. Uh, one other thing, play, especially with the line between online and physical. Um, we've seen some interesting ways this is coming up. Uh, this is an alternative reality game that somebody started. Anybody familiar with alternate, alternative reality games? They're basically, it's sort of like a, um, almost like a scavenger hunt, where it's, um, there, there might be a fictional thread that might be posted in a story or online and there will be physical manifestations of that. So this was a Flickr set of photos that had clues in them. There was a video, and it's kind of surreal and odd, and inside the video there were these flashing numbers that went by that turned out the numbers, if you put them together in the right order, were NYPLRRR and then a bunch of numbers. It was New York Public Library, Rose Reading Room, and a call number. And if you went to the New York Public Library Rose Reading Room and the call number, you found the book on the shelf and you opened the book and there was the next clue was stuck in the back of the book. Uh, we didn't tell them to do this, they just did this, but you know, it's kind of cool that that's happening and why not make it happen? Uh, you want to look locally at an institution who is doing really cool things in this space, uh, Brooklyn Museum, just, there's social media people totally on it. Um, they, this is one of their little games called, they have these tagging parties. Um, so this video is really hilarious. It's like you play this and these people are like furiously writing down ways of describing that, that bicycle in the background and holding up the tags. Uh, so it's like they have these tagging parties where they encourage people to throw out words that describe this object and then they build, they build up tags that way. Um, so it's cool stuff. 
Uh, Infomaki, this is uh, where my little sales pitch comes in. Um, we designed a little bit of software for our website um, to get surveys. Um, and maki, for those of you who are Japanese food fans, maki are these little hand rolls. You mix together some little good bits and chop them into bite-sized uh, things. We thought for information, this does the same thing. So that's where the Infomaki name comes from. Um, we get two kinds of feedback on the web. We get opinion, um, sometimes considered expert opinion, and sometimes less so. Um, so you get people running around saying, I don't like the color of that button. And then on the other side, you have formal analysis, which is potentially more accurate, not always, <laughs> and has a lot more overhead. Um, we designed Infomaki because we needed something in between. We needed to get feedback in measurable ways that wasn't quite so formal. Um, if you've been to our website recently, you might have occasionally seen a little banner across the top that says, do you have time to answer one question? Um, we wrote the language to be as friendly as possible and to lower the cognitive overhead of, of getting people to participate. So, you know, you see it's, yes, I would like to help. Not, yes, I will enter questions on your survey, but yes, I would like to help. It's all friendly, you know. We have an ulterior motive here. We're capitalizing on the warm, fuzzy feelings. Um, and, you know, yes, I'd like to help is very big and bold, and no thanks is sort of, you know, off here in the corner. We ask a question, and we give them a screenshot, and then they click on it. And immediately it says, thank you. And that's it, and they're, and they're almost startled. Like, oh, that was it? Okay. And then we ask them, do you want to do another? And in fact, we got so much feedback from people that the first usability feedback we had on the survey was, can you give me a button that skips over the thank yous and just lets me answer questions? <laughs> <laughs> When's the last time you did a survey where people said, I want more questions to answer? So that's when we knew we were on to something. Um, on, the, on the admin side, this is what it looks like um, after several hundred people have clicked on this design. So we asked them where we click on to find uh, information about historical maps, and most people clicked on that little collections button there. This is the individual clicks. If you can't really figure that out, uh, it gives you a grid view and shows you percentages sort of as a little heat map there. Um, this is another sort of thing. Uh, this is, you'll be shown a web design for just five seconds. This came out of the five second test, uh, Jared Spool. Um, an information designer originally posited this. Some guys in Australia built it. Again, capitalizing on the warm, fuzzy feelings. Nobody's threatened by the library. I called them up and said, you have a great idea, but I can't send people to your website because I lose them. Can I steal your idea? They said, yeah, sure. We've kind of abandoned the project anyway. And they gave me full blessing to rip them off. <laughs> so the five-second test, you show them the design for five seconds. Design flashes, it goes away. And then you said, please write five things you can remember about the design get a nice histogram of things that people remember. And it's very kind of revealing about the things that they remembered. And you can say, are these positive terms, are these negative terms? And you get kind of a sense of what the feedback is. Results of what we've uh, accomplished with Infomaki. We've posted, this is even a little out of date. These numbers have gone up since then. Uh, we've posted 231 separate questions. 
111,000 responses from 10,000 respondents. That's 484 responses per question. And if you did the math quickly, remember the pitch is, do you have time to answer one question? We are only ever asking for one question. And then very suddenly saying, would you like to answer one more? Almost 11 questions per person, average. Uh, we get people saying like, oh, I couldn't stop clicking on it. I wanted to get to the end. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Um, it's not a narrative, you know, it's not a game. There's not a boss level at the end or something. <laughs> um, so, but you know, I, I, I've actually thought about, you know, maybe we should, in, you know, just every once in a while give them a little bonus round and throw them like a trivia question about movies or something. Um, so, Here's some of the things we learned, and we learned a lot of ambiguities about language. Uh, one was support. We tested, uh, we had support the library. Very important, we're supported by uh, a lot of private donations. Um, we were trying to reduce the overall number of words. Somebody said, can we make space by putting support the library, make it down to support. We did that, and what happened? People thought support was technical support. So the people that wanted to donate couldn't find it because they thought it was technical support. People who were looking for technical support were clicking on this and being asked to donate money. <laughs> Put it back to support the library. Ambiguity went away. Something similar happened with community. We, had, we, we struggled mightily with, you know, where do you put social networks and Facebook and all this stuff, which we're really getting involved in and having great success with, but what do you call it? Like, what's the words? So we said, maybe it's community. You know, we'll put community around here. We put community up immediately. It siphoned off 40% of the clicks of people that were looking for their branch libraries. So instead of finding social networks, they were going, I want the hours for the St. George branch. And like, okay, that's what community is the wrong word there. Um, this is what I just found in user testing yesterday. We had uh, an events screen that says, um, you know, here's, here's all the events, and it gives you a long list of events. And then it gives you a little box of filters, like, you know, say, I want only this branch, or I want only thing on this particular day. And you choose, you know, sort of your advanced search things, and there's a button marked apply, which means apply the filters. Well, it's for the classes. So everybody thought apply meant sign up. So they were, I had person after person going, like, how would you sign up for this class? And I'd click the apply button, <laughs> and it broke. Um, so I'll just, I just want to wrap up soon. I think this will take about five minutes or so. This is Infomaki in Action with some of the web page uh, stuff that we've learned applied onto the website. This is the current web page. Um, and, and mind you, the main reason we're doing a redesign is, is to change the engine underneath. We're moving to the Drupal content management system. So our current site is not content managed at all. It is about somewhere between eight and 9,000 individual pages that are mostly HTML. Um, you know, they're not very dynamic at all. So we're moving to a full content managed platform, which I'm excited about, it's a big job. What is the most important button on this page right now? <laughs> Again, know your audience. <laughs> um, by traffic. It's my account. So that one little gray button in the middle of the bar is my account. Um, if you redesigned this site, took this page and redesigned the site, uh, uh, keeping aside searches for now, not people searching MIPL, not people searching the catalog, but just on clicks on buttons, 
if you made the buttons proportional to the number of times they are clicked, the website would look like this. My account from the homepage gets 55% of the clicks. So it's my account, locations and hours of books, and everything else fits down here in the last 10%. So that's proportionally how big it is. So this was an early design. Uh, this is what we were going to do in the summer. Didn't last, had some problems. Um, but at least we got a My Account button that sort of stood out on its own. We said, hey, My Account is important. Let's put the My Account login, username and password, right on the homepage. Um, that design didn't work very well because people dealt better with it as a link than as a dropdown. Uh, we then moved to this which worked better. We had my account up by itself. Um, this is going to be the first homepage. We just launched a new mission statement, so they're being really upfront about the mission statement. Um, but then we realized, oh, that search bar is down in the content area, but on the inside pages, we're going to need to put the search back up in the nav bar, because search has to be on every page. So we moved it up, and we moved my account as a red button up on top of search. And then immediately people thought search was somehow connected to my account because it looks like a, a heading, not a button. Um, so we took back to the designers. They said, here we go, there's a button. And I was like, oh, that's really small. And this dropped from, uh, Inframaki, by the way, will tell you how long it takes somebody to click. So two designs of equal accuracy. Uh, the first one was about 10 and a half seconds. This one was 19 and a half seconds. So almost double the amount of time to find this button versus the red one earlier. Um, so then we redesigned. We went back to, okay, let's boost up the contrast a little bit. This guy's down about 15 seconds, but it still wasn't good. Um, and then finally, we got a button that is actually buttony and sort of sticks out and is large enough and people were finding it and it's not back down with the search box in place, got back down to the original time, matching the original button that, that worked well. So this one's now back to 10 seconds to find uh, this button again. And the Infomaki numbers, by the way, when I say 10 seconds, it's not 10 seconds to click on the link. It's 10 seconds to read the question in Infomaki and then, and then click. So the lowest number we've ever recorded is about six seconds. So we figure take six seconds off of all those numbers. So it takes people about four seconds to find this number. Uh, nav bar, standard gray nav bar here. Um, we made some changes, and if you notice on the new website, we've got different nav bar, and we've replaced um, probably about half of the old links with new language. So this is the nav bar before, this is the old site, and this is what we're going with now. Um, one of the things, um, You'll notice we've got a using the library section. The New York Public Library is a very weird institution. Um, you know, it's very unclear why people don't understand. We only serve three boroughs. People don't understand what research and a circulating collection. People don't understand that you can't take books out of the main library. Um, and you know, and then on top of that, we have all the normal how to use the library stuff that most libraries have. Um, so we're leading with a section called using the library, which is sort of all the tutorials in one place. So that all the FAQs and everything that were scattered below every division are now sort of up front and center. The first thing you want to do is walk in and get oriented. Um, locations and hours, uh, find books, DVDs, and more, collections, classes and events, exhibitions, blogs, videos, and publications. This is that community page we were talking about. Going through many iterations, this, you know, 
you don't want to know some of the other travails we went through to get to this point, but this is actually working pretty well. And support the library, very important, and Ask NYPL is uh, now made itself into the global nav bar as contact the librarian. Um, some of the things we got rid of, calendar uh, is now class events and exhibitions because calendar meant different things to different people. Um, my account sort of moves out of the nav bar and moves up into its own button land. Uh, this is the one when said digital collections, we're no longer making the distinction that the digital collections are something special. Um, there are, you know, all of the collections are becoming digital. You know, all of the book, you know, if we look into the future, all the pictures are getting scanned, all of the books are getting cataloged, everything is digital and physical together. So I just want to wrap up with a couple of insights on Infomaki, then we'll take some questions. First insight, surveys can feel like a video game. We had people really getting into the clicks and really wanting to finish the game, which blew my mind. Um, people often, often offer more than is asked. So you ask for one question, you get 11. And this is the thing that we found which really makes me sort of wary of formalized testing, which still has its place, but not as the only way to do things, is that tiny changes in one part of the nav bar wind up affecting the performance of the rest of the navigation on the website. So with that as a background, it's like you can't do a formalized test at the beginning of the process and then three months later do another formalized test and think you've done the job because all the little changes you've made in between will have a, a, a massive effect. So there's just no substitute for going back and asking people. Uh, we, we pair Infomaki tests. We do them about once every two weeks, run about 30 questions at a time. And in between those times, I'm also doing traditional usability one-on-one -on -one testing and sort of collating between the two. Um, it is Ruby on Rails open source application. We released, released it under the GPL license. We encourage you all to download and play with it. Uh, this is the address bar. Um, if you're familiar with open source, you hear that the, 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 you might be familiar with the phrase free as in beer, free as in speech, or it's the two sort of senses of free, like free as in beer, I don't pay for it, free as in speech, you have full rights to use it. Um, a colleague of mine, Mark Matienzo, was at a, a conference where somebody referred to their open source project as free as in kittens. <laughs> um, th this, is, this is Infomaki, it's free as in kittens. It's, uh, you'll, you can download it for free, but you'll have to you know, take care of it. It's not, you know, it's, 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 a it's at the tinkering stage right now. Um, so finally, out of our 13 elements, don't forget the basics. Um, this is the formula for doing good stuff on the web. Make something great, tell people about it, do it again. Uh, this quote came from a, a great blog post on search engine optimization, where he said, you know, you don't need search engine optimization. You don't need to force people to come to your website. It's the age of social networking. If you do a good job, happy, engaged patrons will do your marketing. Um, everybody has Twitter, everybody has Facebook, everybody loves to tell their friends when they've had a good experience and when they have a bad experience. So, make something great. <laughs> um, last thought. We have about 10 years to do this. This is the population of the United States. Um, I'm using 2,000 census, but you can pretend it's 2009 for the purposes of this illustration. This is the percentage of people who grew up with personal computers. Um, I am right there at the top end of that cohort. Um, I started programming when I was about 10. Um, so everybody below that age sort of has had PCs their whole life. They're now the people that are, you know, 
reaching middle management. Um, this is the cohort that has never taken a breath in a world that did not have the World Wide Web. And I don't mean to depress you, but they voted in the last election for the first time. <laughs> um, this is the group that I have my eye on for the future of libraries. These are the iPod kids. These are the kids who grew up in a world that has always had media superabundance. They're going to be the ones that you have to make the case to libraries to because they're going to be the ones that have a lot of alternatives. And my 10-year number comes from the fact that when these guys start voting, then you have to watch out. Um, this is a quick question on Inframaki that we did. Um, when did you first have your first library experience? And overwhelmingly, people when they were very, very young. So we're we're kind of imprinting people with these good feelings about the library at a very young age, and they maintain that throughout their lives. Um, Clay Shirky at NYU tells a great story. He was at a friend's house. And the little girl was watching TV, and she's watching, you know, a little kid show. And she went around the back of the TV, and they were like, "What are you doing back there?" She's like, "I'm looking for the mouse." <laughs> she wanted to change something in the TV show, and so this was his observation. This is something four-year-olds know: a screen that ships without a mouse ships broken. In other words, these kids are growing up in a world where they think they can get feedback. Everything is a two-way street. Um, the bad social interactions are going to get routed around. Um, so bear that in mind, and you know, as you do your work, keep an eye on the emotions of people. Thank you. search terms and categorize them by hand. Um, I did it once, so that's a snapshot of, uh, of uh, June of this year. Uh, but it's, it's pretty representative. I've gone back and sort of spot-checked a bit of it. And uh, uh, one of the things that we're working on, uh, the, the, the search term clouds that we did are a um, little sort of internal app that we built off of the Google Analytics API. Um, so we're pulling the data from Google Analytics and rewriting it into sort of different visualizations. And we may open source that as well, which gives you that, that, that screenshot I showed of people who search for this later search for these things. Um, and part of what we're thinking about doing there is maybe doing some sort of crowdsourcing where we could have people you know, volunteer to help the library by categorizing search terms for us. And you know, doing the top 1,000 search terms and just, you know, if we get 500 people to categorize two search terms, then we'd crowdsource that work. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a, that's just a, uh, a notion <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, when did you do the research about Mike? Is the information that you were doing about my account? When did you do that? Um, uh, is that over the course of time? I'm interested yeah. in this because of your recent change over to the way yes. the um, 
catalog itself looks, and a lot of people were losing my account information, sure. and whether it was, sure. whether there was a tie or not, yeah. or not to that. This is strictly, that, that stat was strictly looking at the home page, and it's, uh -huh. it's over that period of time. We haven't seen an appreciable difference oh, in, in, in the number of people, because people who are looking for their account are still looking for their account. We've sort of trained them to know that that button is there. Um, what we did see a difference in was any new terms that were introduced in the new catalog shot up the search terms on the main website. So uh, when people had an unfamiliar situation with the new catalog, they immediately started searching the rest of the website for information. So some of the terms that we're using, like closed stacks that appeared in the new catalog that did not appear in the old catalog, suddenly became you know, top 10 search items. Uh, the day that we launched the new catalog was to that date the busiest day we ever had on the main website, even though they're not technically connected. Because it was just, people were a little thrown and they went back to the start. And they, they were probably ready to kill you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 was, it was a little rocky, but we, 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 we've gotten a lot of the problems sort of settled down there. Um, again, it goes back to you know, that that's not something we built in the house. So. Yeah. By the way, uh, your nine-year-old experience described mine to a T <laughs> uh, for the New York Public Library. But uh, my question is, you know, where, um, you know, this is very much kind of adapting of the audience of the New York Public Library, and mm -hmm. I wonder how much uh, there's kind of, at least in the internal discussions, more prescriptive approach to what is a good patron. In other words, you know, maybe uh, the stay-at-home mom, you know, is a huge, you know, searcher, but, you know, the New York Public Library has decided, and I don't mean to, you know. Sure. Uh, but, you know, where, where does that conversation and how do those come into play for the New York Public Library? Um, if I, th I think I see where you're going, and, and uh, the, the way we phrase the question is we're balancing who are our existing users versus who do we want to be our users. Um, I take the approach, um, sort of this approach that I closed on, that um, I think in this age where everybody communicates with everybody else, if you take care of your core audience, they will evangelize for you. They will, they will grow that audience out. Um, when I came in, my charge within this position was that the library was good at top line stats. They were good at the 51 million items in the collection. They were good at the 35,000 unique visitors a day. They were good at, you know, we had these 100,000 people came in through the door. And my charge over the past year has been, let's go down deeper. Who are these people individually? Um, so we are, you know, we're breaking that down into personas. It's by necessity right now, largely built on um, who are the existing audience and understanding as much as we can about them. Uh, but we just started over the past, really within the past week or two, um, we started uh, this partnership with strategy, our strategy department, where we're actually going out and building the personas for predictive, for, for saying this is where we're going. Um, and probably, you know, I think some of the findings out of that will probably make public at some point. At, at the very least, they're going to be shared with staff internally. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a tool that will be distributed to you know, on the intranet to, uh, you know, to 
even if you're not doing this sort of thing just yet, I think it's a good thing to know. This is the research we've done to say this is the persona of you know this particular segment of the population who is significant for these reasons, and then use that for the librarians to make their own conclusions. <coughs> yeah. Are you doing anything about the new pack in terms of you know, evaluating the catalog? Or, or in terms of usability? usability yeah. God, I hope so. Yes. It's a bit of a struggle in the short term because uh, my department builds any of, we, we have 100% control over anything that the library builds in-house. We don't build everything in-house. Um, our OPAC is a third-party vendor. Uh, so at a certain point, we give as many recommendations as possible, uh, but you know, getting enforcing action on those recommendations is sometimes a bit of a struggle. Um, but we, my, the, the approach we've continued to do is uh, the more that we can use these tools to generate data and to make the case, you know, we just keep moving it forward. Um, the, the preferred metaphor for this is, is that we're trying to move from conceiving of web projects as assembly line. Um, you know, where it's like, this is the car, it rolls off the assembly line, you drive it for five years until it breaks and then you buy a new car. We're trying to move from that and we're trying to get the metaphor in everybody's head of gardening. You know, when, when's your garden done? <laughs> you know, like you don't, you don't come out one day and go like, Hey, the garden's finished. You know, it's like every day you water, every day you fertilize, every day you pull weeds. And you know, if you expect the finish line, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you enjoy the process and you concentrate on the process, so we're trying to push that way. Um, I don't lack for things to do. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you about that. How do you um, introduce new tasks? How do you introduce new software, knowing that everything? needs to be maintained. Introduced to? Um, there's a new technology, like every five minutes, there's 20 new things, and now 46 things, you know, it's a lot. Yeah. So how do you incorporate new things each time into your process? Um, it, it varies. I mean, we have certain, we have a certain number of tech stacks that we try to concentrate on. So we try not to, uh, we're, we're doing Dribble for the main site, and then a lot of our little one-off sites have been Ruby on Rails lately. Uh, we're trying to move away from things that require really heavy engineering lifting. Um, we have an Oracle database as a back end for a lot of the metadata, and we found that, you know, this requires an Oracle tech. Um, so, you know, we're trying to move to more open source databases where there's just more people around who have the, the requisite skills. Um, but when we go to build something, we try to stick with the proper tech stacks. And then, you know, it's, we've, we've got some freedom to experiment a little bit. Um, you know, it, it comes down to, it's, it's not really a formalized process yet, thank goodness. Um, it's just, you know, it's really sitting down with the IT team and going like, I need to deploy a new website, and if, if you can make the case for them, look, this is going to be small, it's going to be an internal tool, it, it's the same back end as what we were doing before, they're like, okay, we'll roll it out. And if it's going to be something that generates traffic, you have to, you know, buy a beer or something to get on the good side. But, yeah, you know, we, we, we try to make the case. I'm going to take one last question, and I know we have to wrap up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I understood you correctly, you, Google, and all the uh, corporations that are providing free services as actual competition to the library world, is that, is that fair um, understanding? I wouldn't say that 
competition, I wouldn't call them direct competition. I wouldn't say that Google wants to be the library. But I think the key thing is that something I have noticed having come from that world, being a newcomer in the library world, is that it's very much struck me how much libraries look at each other, which is great. I encourage that. But a lot of the innovation on the usability side is happening outside the library world. And there's innovation happening in the library world that's great, that's wonderful. But the, the total picture is everything that is going on. And um, William McDonough, you know, I quote constantly because he's one of my design heroes, but he has a great phrase on this. He, he talks about the, the, the Latin root of the word competition. It's competare, to strive together. You know, you don't, you know, athletes compete. They strive together, they get fit together, they, they make each other better, and then one wins the Olympics. But the process there is, is that. So there's so much to be learned from these groups that are doing that. Um, I think you know, having a sense of what Google does and what their goals are, there's ways in which the library and Google can coexist. You know, if, if we're worried about Google search taking you know, um, you know, in, a very, in a very straightforward way, you know, libraries tend to be freaking out about people just going to Google search when they could be searching for stuff that they used to search in the library. It's like, well, let's make sure we're in Google. You know, let's make sure that our pages are indexed. Let's make sure that we're, you know, let's make sure that we're on blogs that are in the Google searches that are linking back to us and feed the ecosystem rather than just say, oh, stay away, they make money and we don't. What about the problem that by using Google Analytics, you're essentially giving all your user data to Google? Uh, I run that by the legal department of the library every six months or so just to make sure they're still cool with it. That is the one issue in Google Analytics is that you are taking your, your, your user, not, it, it's anonymized, first of all. That's their main concern. Can't track it back to an individual. They don't store IP addresses. But the fact that we have the, 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 you know, the, our, our data on there, we, we're upfront about that. And we say, you know, are you guys still cool with this? And we weigh the, the benefits versus the drawbacks. And but if Google decides to muscle in on the libraries, they now have all of your user data. Are you going to be able to compete if you shift the currency? Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, and, and I think, you know, what, to my mind, the strongest bulwark about that is the warm, fuzzy feelings people have about the libraries. You know, if Google comes down and does something really heinous that stomps on libraries, we're going to let people know. <laughs> you know, we, we, libraries, you know, if libraries can sort of band together as, and, and make that voice heard, that, that's... That's a well-respected voice in the industry. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Michael.
He talks a lot about you know manufacturing, but it, but it really applies to all sorts of um, all sorts of processes. Yeah, I'm trying to look for one of his articles. Yeah, there's a, there's a site called IT Conversations, which you can download the audio of. Uh, 